Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Carol Ann Flood, and I'm the worship director here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life, or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by His Word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in Him. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you here uh, at Frontline as well, if you're watching online. It's great to have you tuning in with us as well. And man, what an incredibly powerful time of worship. I just want to say, Jenna, I don't know where you are, uh, in the, if you're in the room or hearing me, but uh, thank you so much for just the gift of your vulnerability uh, to share that with us. Uh, what an incredibly powerful thing. That's what we celebrate as a church. That's what we celebrate in the Zero Collective is this idea of changed lives. Is there, we're not done until there are zero people who, who have a story of Jesus changing their life. Uh, so that's what we're all about. And um, right now, we're today we're wrapping up actually the series we've been working our way through. It's all about God who pursues us, what we were just singing about a moment ago, the story of the Bible. And so the first movement, we talked about how we were originally designed, how we were created, uh, how we were in, in originally de- intended to live in relationship with God and with each other and with our world. And then for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the, in the story of scripture where it all went wrong, where it all went horribly bad. And so we've been talking about about uh, the fall and the fallen nature. And so as as we wrap up that part today, uh, I want to just kind of expose a lie that we all believe. It's part of our fallen nature. It's part of the brokenness uh, uh, of our humanity and of the sin that we live with and that we live in every single day. Uh, But this uh, this is a lie that we all believe. You believe this. I believe this. It's this idea that what I do is who I am. What I do, that's who I am. And maybe you're right now going, I I don't think I believe that. Uh, Let let me give you an example from our world. We do this all the time just in discussion with each other. When you you meet someone, oftentimes uh, the question that comes up very quickly in the conversation is, so what do you do for a living? And notice whenever you ask the question, what do you do for a living? The way a person almost always answers it is, is we say, well, I am a... Right? When When we're asked, what do you do for a living? We answer, I am a... I am a surgeon. That's what we say. We don't say, I cut people open for a living, and I take out body parts. You know, that's, not, that's what you do for a living, but you say, I am a surgeon. What do you do for a living? Well, I, I am a computer programmer, right? Not, I push the buttons until someone tells me they like the way that I push the buttons. <laughs> that's what a computer programmer does, right? But we say, I am. It's the same for me. When people ask me, Brian, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I am a pastor. That's the way I answer. I I don't say, well, I spend all my time basically just disappointing people at a rate that they can stand. (laughs) Now, that is what I do all day long, baby. I just let people down at a rate that they can tolerate. But I don't say that. What I say is, well, I am a pastor. That's, That's what I say. And so we all kind of live by, the, by what I would just call the performance equation. It's this idea that my performance plus people's approval of me equals my value. So my performance when it comes to my job, my work, uh, my performance when it comes to grades or school or sports 
or my, my performance when it comes to, you know, being a, a father or being a mother, parenting, whatever it is, my performance plus people's approval of that, that equals my value. What I do is essentially who I am. It's, it's something that we believe. And here, let me just kind of play this out for a minute. When we believe that lie, when we embrace it, uh, the, where it goes is when we fail, when we make a mistake, when we fall short, when we've believed this lie, what we've done, our failure isn't just something we've done, it becomes who we are. And this leads to shame in our lives. So I, it's not just that I failed, it's that I am a failure. I am worthless. I am no good, right? This is the messaging, but, but the flip side of that is not much better. If, when we believe this lie, what I do is who I am. When, when we succeed on the other side of this, we believe that our success is not just something that we did, it's who we are, right? And so that leads to pride. That leads to superiority. That leads to looking down at others. So, so we don't have empathy for others when they fail or when they fall short. We go, well, if you, if you could just be a little more like me, if you could do what I do, you wouldn't have that problem. You wouldn't be in that situation, and neither one of those things leads to good things in our lives. It doesn't lead to healthy relationships. It doesn't lead to a healthy sense of who I am with God. And it always bears bad fruit in our lives. And so uh, for me, um, personally, where this lie kind of affects me is I can believe, and I think I have for years and years wrestled with this, that I'm only as good as my last sermon that I preached. Right? So I have to remember that my sole value does not come from how many, you know, how many people were impacted by a sermon I gave or how many people attend the church that I pastor or how many people watch online or whatever it is. My sole value can't be derived from those things or it leads to bad things in my life. What I do is who I am. All of us at some level have believed that. And what I want you to see this morning, as we wrap up kind of this second movement of the series, is that the reason we believe that lie is because it's, the, it's part of the framing story of humanity. It's part of the mental map we have because of what happened in the original story of humanity. So if you would, one last time, would you join me in the Garden of Eden? We've spent quite a bit of time these last few weeks looking at the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve take a bite of the fruit. They disobey God, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin and brokenness enters our world. And this is kind of the end of that passage of Genesis 3. It says this, so the Lord God banished him, Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the great framing story of all of us, it's all, every human being, you, me, everybody, is this idea that we've, we've lost home. Uh, that we are wanderers, that essentially inside of all of us, we have this sense that I'm not sure where I belong. I belong somewhere and I'm longing for home and, and, we, and we don't have it. And so, the, you know, that's the human story. That's hardwired into us. We're separated by our father because of our, our sin. David talked about that a little bit last week, what it means that we've been separated and there's distance between us and, and our heavenly father. So as you go forward in the story of the scripture, go ahead to that next one. The question becomes, how do God's people bridge the gap between God's holiness and human sin? We've lost the garden. We've lost home. How do we build, bridge the gap? How do God's people, rather, bridge the gap between God's holiness and human sin? And the answer to that is the law. 
And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. The law, the law of Moses that you find in the Old Testament becomes the way the people perform their goodness. The way that God's people are, are intended to perform their goodness so that they can overcome that gap between God's holiness, because he's a holy God, and our human sin that has uh, broken us and broken our world that we live in. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit this morning. Now, if you go in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws that you find in the Old Testament. That's a lot of commandments. That's a lot of commandments to remember and to follow. And so uh, we're going to go through each one of those 613 one by one today. <laughs> Just kidding. I said I let people down at a rate they can stand. That would be a rate you could not stand. So I won't do that today. But it, the scholars and thinkers, if I can give you a picture of the law, uh, scholars and thinkers have broken the law down into three big uh, ideas or three big compartments, if you will. And so uh, the, th the kind of three different areas of the law is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. That makes up the 613 that you find in the Old Testament. Now, just to explain these, the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments. And even if you didn't grow up in church, I bet you know at least some of the Ten Commandments. You know what they are. The Ten Commandments are reaffirmed again in the New Testament. Jesus reaffirms the Ten Commandments. Okay, the moral law are basically moral principles by which we live our lives. They're, they still apply to us today. We're still invited to live by the moral law today in, in our world. Um, the moral law, I, the way I would describe it, is kind of like gravity. It's hardwired into our world. Right? It's a, it's a principle that applies to our world whether you want it to apply to you or not. Like if you go up on this top of this building and you jump off Frontline's building, you're going to hit the ground. That's what's going to happen. It's because that's gravity. Gravity is hardwired into the world. That's kind of how the moral law is. With the, the caveat of that is with the, with the exception of one. And that's the fourth commandment, which is to, uh, do, to take a Sabbath. We talked about that early in this series. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, when he came, he actually fulfilled that commandment on, his, uh, on our behalf. So he fulfilled the Sabbath. So that's not a moral command of the Ten Commandments. But all the rest of them are the moral law. The ceremonial law, that, that applies to the priests and the Levites, their duties with the temple, with the sacrificial system, with the purity laws. So there was this whole system of how to become pure, how to, how to have sacrifices that cover uh, the sins of the people and the priests and the Levites um, live by that. And there's tons of laws about that. Now, again, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus fulfilled all the ceremonial law on his death on the cross. He paid the price on our behalf. So the ceremonial law no longer applies to us. That's, not why, I'm, that's why I'm not sacrificing an animal right here in front of us, right in church, because Jesus fulfilled that on our behalf. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. And then the civil law, that applies to like how crime and punishment was dealt with in ancient Israel. Now, those laws don't apply to us either today because uh, ancient Israel was a theocracy. It means God ruled. They weren't a democracy. They weren't, you know, a monarchy or something else. They were a theocracy. And so here's the thing. The ceremony and the civil law can tell us things about who God is. We can learn things about who God is, what he cares about, what his nature is by studying the ceremonial and civil law, but it doesn't apply to us today. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, are still what we're invited to live by and to order our lives by today in our world. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I told you all that so that I could tell you this. It does, whatever, whenever you're talking about the law, it doesn't matter what part of the law you're talking about, the moral law, the ceremonial, or the civil law, none of it saves you. None of it gets you good with God. 
What the gospel tells us is that following the law is actually not a path to be saved. It's not actually the way that, that we're saved. What the law is, even especially the moral law, it becomes a reflection that happens in our lives after we place our faith and our trust in Jesus. Transformation happens as we learn to follow him. That's what we're invited into. That's what we're invited to understand. So if you could go to that next uh, thought there. The main idea we're talking about this morning as we talk about the law is this idea that the law was designed to point us to our need for a savior, not replace our savior. The law and our failings to, to perform the law and to live up to it was supposed to point us to our need for a savior, not replace our savior. It's meant to help point us to, to who Jesus is rather than become something that helps us follow this lie that we believe that, you know, essentially what I do, that's who I am. Now, uh, I know this, and I bet a whole bunch of you know this already too, but even, even some of you watching online, I bet you know that if you grew up in church, you've probably heard that before and you're like, yeah, I know all this. But even though I know this, <laughs> a couple months ago, uh, I came here to church, I showed up at 2.30 p.m. for a 2 p.m. meeting. And I do stuff like this all the time, by the way. Um, but it was a meeting with our staff. Now, what made it even worse, the fact that I showed up half an hour late, was that this was a weekly meeting. It happened every single week. It's, it's like all, every week it's on my calendar. But here's what happened. I showed up at 2.30 for the 2 p.m. meeting. Our staff are sitting in the room, and I walk in, and they're kind of like, hey, I was wondering when you were going to get here. And I said to them, what are you talking about? This meeting is always at 2.30. I'm on time. And they kind of look at each other and, and smile. And they say, no, no, Brian, this meeting's always been at 2. Every single week you come in, it, it's, it's at 2 p.m. And I was like, no, this meeting is at 2.30 every single week. What are you guys talking about? I really thought that it was at 2.30. And so we kind of have this back and forth. And so now I'm getting annoyed. So I get out my phone and I go into my calendar and I look. And sure enough, the notification on my calendar says 2 p.m. And I look back the week before, 2 p.m., 2 p.m. It's on there. It's a recurring calendar event at 2 p.m. and I walked in at 2.30 and was convinced they were wrong and I was right. <laughs> the embarrassment I feel in those moments when I do something dumb like that is hard to put into words. And, and here, here's the thing, the staff, they were gracious about it. They weren't mean to me. They were forgiving. I mean, they, they kind of laughed a little bit about it, but they weren't like, you know, being mean to me about it. They were gracious. They were forgiving. But can I be honest with you, that, that stuck with me for like a week. Every time I would think back, on, oh, I can't believe I did that. I looked so dumb in front of our staff. And, and the reason those moments stick with me, and believe me, those kind of things happen to me a lot, is because they take, touch back and they take me back to when I was a kid. I have ADD. And so uh, growing up, I, even though I was medicated, I always felt like the dumb kid. Right, So like school was really tough for me. I was always the kid that like showed up at the wrong time in the wrong place. I was never where I was supposed to be. I was never paying attention. I, I remember I would always be the kid that was like, oh, I thought the assignment was due tomorrow, right? And it's due today. And now there's this panic moment. Uh, my, I struggled with my grades. I struggled, you know, following the assignment correctly, you know, remembering the instructions. I, I remember I had, I had a teacher in second grade. I, I'll never forget this. She used to do this to me on a regular basis. I would, you know, be like, you know, spacing out in class or, or talking to somebody or not doing what I was supposed to do. In front of the whole class, she would go, Earth to Brian. That's what she would yell, Earth to Brian. And like the whole class would stop, people would laugh, and it would like kind of shake me back into, oh yeah, I need to be paying attention. I, I just, I grew up, I just felt so dumb 
And so even today, even though I know what we just shared about and what we just talked about, this lie that has affected me that I've believed ever since I was a kid, this idea that what I do is ultimately who I am. My performance plus people's approval of that ultimately equals my value. And so when I mess up, when I fail, when something happens, it gets its, root, its claws in me because it goes to identity. It goes into this idea, this place of shame. Because ultimately we've all believed that what we do, how we perform, that's where our value comes from. That's who I am. It's true for you. What failure or mistake are you tempted to define yourself by? Because you've got it too. What failure, what shortcoming do you have this temptation to just define yourself by, define who you are by? Maybe it's the scale. If you can't, you stand on it, you can't get it to say this weight or that weight, I'm worthless. It's not just I, I failed at my diet this week. It's I am a failure. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's the job that you're doing. Maybe it's the grades you're getting. Maybe it's your performance in, in the sport that you're in. Whatever it is, we all have these things. And they go to the core of our identity. And so what happens is when, when the gospel comes into our lives, when we get this news, what we were just singing about earlier, that there's this God who's been pursuing us, and then in Jesus uh, there is rescue. In Jesus, there is salvation. What we actually need Jesus to do when we are saved, what we need is for Jesus to give us an entirely new identity to live out of. Because what you do is who you are. That identity won't work. It won't sustain you through your life. We need an entirely new identity that's not derived and not based on anything that we've done. And so when Jesus comes into our lives, when we embrace the gospel, when we understand it, Jesus actually gifts us a brand new identity. His identity is transferred to us. And when you have your new identity in Jesus and you actually begin to live out of your new identity in Jesus, his new identity sets you free from the need to perform. It'll set you free from the need to impress people. It'll set you free from the need to constantly uh, perform and get other people's approval so that then you can feel valuable and when you're living out of your true identity in Jesus, rather than this false identity of what I do is who I am, it just sets you free to love people. It sets you free to, to bless people. Because you're not living in this constant anxiety of, am I performing well? Am I impressing them? Am, am I doing the good things I'm supposed to do and avoiding the bad things I'm not supposed to do? And you, you just set free to, to live into who you truly have become in Christ. That's what Jesus wants for you and for me and for all of us. That's what he wants to gift us. You see this in the book of Galatians so clearly. Paul uh, writes to this group of churches in, in the area of Galatia that he helped start. And he's trying to get them to understand the, the relationship of the law and you know, this whole idea of what I do is who I am and how well am I following the law and, and their relationship to their true identity in Christ. I love this passage He's trying to explain it to them. He says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So Jesus in the incarnation actually became one of us. He was subject to the law, to living under that as a human being. And God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. 
And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Do you see what that's saying? That you are no longer defined by what I do is who I am. Now you have a new identity and you are a child of God. You're a child of the king. That's your true identity. That's what you're called to live out of. And when you begin to accept that truth in your life, you go from what I do is who I am. You reject that and you begin to live into this idea that who I am is because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. Not because of something I've done, not because of something I've earned, but it's based in him. It's based on what he's done on my behalf. And when that happens, it can set you free from your need to perform, from your need to constantly appear that you've got it all together. Now, here's what I want to say to you. The, the, the question then becomes, if we know that, if we've lived into that, many of us in this room, many of us watching on, we've, we've accepted Christ. We've come to this place where we've embraced Jesus. So why is it, if we've been given this new identity in Jesus, why is it that we keep beating ourselves up every time we fail, every time we fall short? Why do I think for a week about that stupid meeting where I walked in a half an hour late and was convinced I was, I was right and they were wrong? Why, why are those moments, uh, why, do they, why does it still get our, its hooks in us? Why does it happen? And the reason it happens, if I could just kind of walk through this, is because we've embraced something that actually isn't the true gospel. And it's exactly what was happening to the Galatians. I would just describe it this way, and I'm not the first person to say it this way. But what we actually embrace instead of the gospel, we think we've embraced the gospel, we think we've accepted Jesus, but what we've actually accepted is this message of law, grace, law. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we come to this place where we realize that we can't be good enough to earn God's grace and his forgiveness. We, the law can't save us. Following the law can't save us. What I do is who I am isn't going to work in our lives. And so we come to this place where we accept the grace of Jesus Christ into our lives. We, ex we accept him as our savior. He comes into our lives. But then what we do from there is we return to basically a shined up version of the law where we just try harder to get our act together. Because after all, now I'm a Christian. Do you see it? Well, well, now that I'm a Christian, I need to get my act together. I shouldn't be looking at porn like this anymore. I should be better than that. I shouldn't be drinking as much as I am. I shouldn't have trouble with that addiction anymore. I should be able to be better because I'm a Christian now and I need to follow this. And so what we end up doing is we actually end up going from law to grace. And then instead of living out of our true identity in Jesus, we just go back to trying in our own effort. This is most of us. I'm convinced of it. In fact, this is exactly what was happening with the Galatian church. Here's kind of the backstory of Galatians. Paul starts these churches and these people, these Gentiles are coming to Christ and they're coming to faith in Jesus. But then what happens is this other group of people comes in after Paul has come in to start this church and they come in and basically scholars call them the Judaizers. Um, that's a, Paul calls them the agitators in Galatians, but we call them the Judaizers. And we, the reason we call them that is because their basic message to the people is they said, okay, yes, you need Jesus. That's great. But if you really want to be good with God, you need to get circumcised and you need to follow the law. That's what they, they tell them. So literally you have like grown men who are like, man, even though I, I have Jesus in my life now, I guess I better get circumcised and basically become a good Jewish person who follows the law. I love what Paul says in Galatians 3. He's talking to them and he's confronting this very idea. And he says, how foolish can you be? 
After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? <laughs> He's saying, why, if when you went from great law to grace, why are you going back to the law? Why are you returning back to your own human effort? Why, why would you do that? It's, it's as if you haven't understood the basic message of the gospel at all. And, and I'm telling you, so many of us, we live the same way. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you've heard the gospel more times than you can count. Maybe you accepted Jesus when you were this tall. But the rest of your life, it became about, well, now that I'm a Christian, I better get my act together. Because after all, I'm a Christian. I better work harder, better work harder. And you've just doubled down, is all you've done, on the lie that what I do is basically who I am. My ability to perform plus other people's approval of me, that's where my value comes from. And it's breaking stuff in your life because you've believed that to the core of your being. I'm telling you today, Jesus has something better. He, he wants to set you free from that. So let me use an illustration to try to, to try to talk about what it means to come to a place where we truly understand the gospel and we really experience accept God's grace into our lives, and then we begin to live out of the identity that he gives us in our lives. Um, there's, in our world, there's different kinds of bankruptcy. And the most co two common kinds of bankruptcy that most people will face, if you come to a place where some of you maybe have experienced this, where your debts are too big and you can't pay them off, you have this choice to make. Am I going to claim chapter 11 bankruptcy for most people, or, or am I going to claim chapter 7 bankruptcy? Let me explain the difference. Chapter 11 bankruptcy, basically what you do is uh, you claim chapter 11 bankruptcy, the creditors stop, and you basically have some time to reorganize, uh, pay back some of your debts, get back on top of things. It's temporary. And then once you kind of get it back together, you can move forward again. You can come out of chapter 11 bankruptcy. Many of us, I think in the church, most of us, even a lot of us even as Christians, what we've done is we've claimed chapter 11 bankruptcy spiritually. That's what we've done. We've said, okay, you know, we came to this place where we said, okay, God, you know, I know I need you in my life. These debts uh, are too big for me to pay. And so we've accepted Christ, but then it's kind of like, but it's temporary. Now I'm going to reorganize. I'm going to get back on my feet. I'm going to work harder. Once I get my act together, then I can kind of move forward. And what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians and, and what, the, what the gospel invites us into is a lot more like what we think of when we think of chapter seven bankruptcy. Chapter 7, bankruptcy, what happens is we, we basically claim that the debt is too large to ever overcome it. New loans won't help. More time won't help. You know, just somebody else coming in and helping, working with us won't help. So what you do with Chapter 7 is it's a total loss. You write everything off as a total loss. You sell off everything you have, and that's your only chance of being able to walk away free. Chapter 7, bankruptcy, spiritually, is more a picture of what grace is in the Bible. It's more a picture of what the gospel invites us into in the Bible. And it's what Paul describes in Galatians. Look, at, I, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Uh, Galatians 6, 14. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul says this. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see it? It's all a total loss. Paul just, he says, I mean, I never boast anything except the cross. Do you understand? Paul was a learned Jewish, uh, he, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Roman citizen. Paul had a lot of stuff he could boast about. He'd done a lot of incredible good things for God. He comes to the end of this passage in the book of Galatians. He says, don't you get it? I will never boast about anything 
except the cross. I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. It's all a total loss. The only thing I'm living out of is the grace and the mercy that God has given me. Chapter 11, spiritual bankruptcy, basically still allows you to take some credit for it. It allows you to double back down on the lie that what I do is ultimately who I am. So yeah, Jesus helped me. He's there in my life. He's like, he, he and I, he's like my bro. He's my co-pilot. He's with me here as I work and I steer the plane. And as I try to reorganize and get my act together, Chapter seven is, I have no hope of paying this off. I'm broken beyond repair. And I need Jesus to come in and give me an entirely new identity. And when we do that, we can't harvest any credit. All the glory goes to him. And when you meet somebody who's living out of their true identity in Jesus. These are the people you want to be around. These are the people who've been set free and they just, they're able to love people, no strings attached. They don't manipulate. They're able to bless people. They're able to follow after Jesus and be who they truly are. And they're comfortable in their own skin. Why? Because it's not based on them. And when you begin to get that, when you begin to live every single day out of your true identity, you are a child of God. You are a dearly loved son. You are a dearly loved daughter. It changes you and it changes everything else that you touch and that you interact with in your world. So, What's the application today? It feels weird to get to the end of a sermon and go, here's the three things you need to do, right? <laughs> the best, the best I, thing I've got to offer you and the only thing that's really worked in my life and the older I get, the more precious this becomes to me. I'm telling you, the more things I go through in life, the more this becomes like the central message I just cling to is just the best thing you can do every single day is just claim chapter seven bankruptcy spiritually. Come to God and just begin, God, I confess my inability I can't bail myself out of this one. Jesus talked about it as in terms of like the abiding life. He's the vine, we're the branch. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But when we are living out of our true identity in him, when we are abiding in him, he can produce fruit in our lives. And when that happens, he gets the glory, not us. So let's just take a moment, shall we? Can you bow in prayer with me? all across this room, even if you're watching online, can you just maybe create some space in your life and your heart to just do some, uh, just do some business with God? Do you need to declare chapter seven bankruptcy this morning? Are you working hard and things are getting worse and you're feeling worse about yourself because what I do is ultimately who I am? Or are you struggling with pride, superiority, ego because of the bottom of, uh, of your being, you believe this is all about you. It's all about what you've done, what you've been able to curate for yourself. Maybe you're struggling and wondering, why can't I get real about my struggles? Why can't I ask for help? Why do I feel so ashamed all the time? Why do I get so angry when somebody else points out my mistakes, my faults? The reason is because all you've done is declare chapter 11 bankruptcy. Deep down, you still believe what I do is who I am. And this morning, Jesus, we just come before you. We don't come before you as slaves to the law, slaves to performance, slaves to what I do is who I am. We come to you 
as dearly loved sons and daughters of the Most High. Our identity, who we are, is not because of anything we've done. It's because of what you did for us on the cross on our behalf. And so we claim that this morning. Jesus, would you give us our new identity in you? That you've pursued us, that you've loved us enough. It's what we celebrate in baptism, Jesus. Is when we go down that water, we're saying it's a total loss. I'm dead to that old life, to me fixing it. And we come out of the water a new person in you a new identity in you. That's what we need, Jesus. Some of us are living in that and some of us are not. Some of us have just gone from law to grace and then right back to the law and we're working and we can't figure out why you seem so distant. This morning, we just claim chapter seven bankruptcy. We need you, God. We need you. We look around at our world and we just confess. We don't have the answers. We don't have what it takes. Uh, there's not, we, we don't have in us anything that we bring to the equation other than our own need for you, our own desperation for you, uh, our own sin and our own brokenness that points us to you, to our need for a savior. That's who we turn to right now. So fill us again. Holy Spirit, come and fill us again. Help us to live again. Remind us again of who we really are, of what our true identity is as we turn to you and help us to live out of that. Our marriages need it. Our families need it. Our our places of work, our schools desperately need that. Help us to live into that. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in Him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com forward slash connect. We look forward to connecting with you there, and we'll see you back here next week.